preparing Reflections from Asia every week and seeking not to repeat myself, I'm always on the lookout for different angles and fresh perspectives. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the Asian and the world's tensions, conflicts and controversies that one forgets to ask, what does it all mean? Where are we heading? Amidst the crush of all the negative developments, one may neglect to seek a more positive outlook. Last week, by chance, I came across some fascinating perspectives in a speech about Asia and the world in the year 2015, delivered to a seminar in Los Angeles at the end of January, but generally unnoticed. Let me first share some of these insights with you, before revealing their source, for that will in turn indicate another interesting perspective. The speech began with a different angle. Charismatic new leaders in the world's two most populous nations, President Xi Jinping of China and Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India, are this year both pressing ahead with ambitious economic and political reform plans. President Xi is taking on two of China's most daunting challenges, rebalancing the world's second largest economy away from investment and towards consumption, and tackling the corrosive, pervasive corruption that, as the president himself acknowledges, threatens to undermine the Beijing regime's legitimacy. Across the Himalayas, Prime Minister Modi has promised to cut the red tape and roll out the red carpet, upending stereotypes of bureaucratic and protectionist India and striving for a return to growth rates achieved between 2003 and 2011. In Tokyo, too, a new and old leader, Shinzo Abe, plans to finally achieve structural reform of his nation's notoriously inefficient services sector as the third arrow in the Abenomics quiver. In the past year, Australia concluded free trade agreements with South Korea, Japan and China, three of its four top trading partners. Trade Minister Rob is now shuttling between Canberra and Delhi, negotiating a similar agreement with India. Prime Minister Modi enthusiastically endorsed this goal during his recent visit to Australia in which he packed out arenas usually reserved for pop stars of the likes of Taylor Swift and One Direction. While Australia has been busy on the bilateral front, it is also working closely with the United States and other nations to advance the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the ambitious 12-nation Regional Trade and Investment Treaty proposed by the United States. The TPP has grown in importance given the failure to conclude the World Trade Organization's Doha Round. Needless to say, the effectiveness of the TPP will be considerably enhanced by the inclusion of China, whose constructive participation in regional elements is a central element in its peaceful rise. But China has not yet been invited to join the TPP negotiations. Across the entire Asia-Pacific, cross-border flows of goods, services and capital are not only increasing but becoming ever more free. That brings complications, specific challenges to the developed economies and a new role for political leaders in unravelling complexity.
Having laid out the broad economic situation, the speaker then sought to convey the big picture of emerging Asia's rapid economic rise. The rebooting of India, the economic rebalancing in China, structural reform in Japan and continued liberalisation of trade and investment, these are four complex but vitally important issues for Asia-Pacific. But first, beyond these immediate events, shaping the near-term outlook for the Asia-Pacific lies a much bigger story. That, of course, is the great geopolitical transformation of our time, the economic rise of emerging Asia, except Japan, led by China. Obviously, the questions posed by emerging Asia's rise are pivotal to the future of the Asia-Pacific. How quickly will these economies expand in the next few years? And what reforms are required to rekindle the rapid catch-up growth of the early 21st century? And by catch-up growth, I mean the process by which the developing economies converge with the productivity of developed economies. What will the global distribution of economic production look like when the most rapid phase of catch-up growth has run its course in China, India, and Indonesia? How will tensions along the way be handled, including those arising from the inevitable translation of enlarged economic resources into enhanced military power? What are the implications for the environment and for the supply and demand for natural resources? And how ready are Western nations and Western-dominated multilateral institutions to adapt to a very different distribution of global power than that which they have been used to? The speaker continues, Whilst I have framed this as the Indian and Chinese economies growing to catch up with developed nations, we should remember that from antiquity until as late as the mid-19th century, China and India were themselves the two biggest global economies, typically accounting for 40 to 50% of world GDP, according to the economic historian Angus Madison. So while some in the West struggle with the very thought of a future where China and India are the two of the world's three largest economies, the Chinese and Indians are likely to view it as a return to the status quo ante. So the speed of Asia's rise, cultural differences between East and West, and the lingering effects of colonialism could all exacerbate the likelihood of conflict. This transition of global power will be a very different handoff than that from Britain to the United States a century or so ago. But is the past any guide to the future? Some suggest China will in time invoke a latter-day Monroe Doctrine, asserting its hemispherical primacy as the United States did nearly 200 years ago. But this analogy is quite inapt. The Western Hemisphere in 1823 consisted of the United States of America, the British colonies in Canada, and an assortment of struggling, weak, unstable Latin American colonies which had either just become independent or were seeking to do so. The Western Pacific today, on the other hand, apart from China, includes a nuclear power in Russia, the world's third largest economy in Japan, the world's fourth most populous nation in Indonesia, not to speak of other powerful, rapidly developing powers. 
The construct of the Western Pacific as a lake in which there are only two players, the United States and China, is just plainly and simply dead wrong. China has, under President Xi, both sought to build stronger ties with countries in the region and at the same time has firmly restated China's claim to various islands, reefs and shoals in both the East and the South China Seas. This maritime muscularity is very different from the approach to various disputed land borders a decade ago, which saw, for example, the settlement of the border between Russia and China. While Chinese strategic thought is especially sophisticated in its view of contradiction, there seems little doubt that the tough line on the disputed islands and reefs has been quite counterproductive. It has served to do no more than remind China's neighbours of the importance of a strong, continuing American presence as a counterbalance to China. But if China's objective is to reduce America's military presence and strategic influence in the region, it would be resolving all these territorial disputes swiftly and peacefully with a view to reassuring its neighbours that they had nothing to fear as China's military power comes to match its economic might. 2015 is also the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, and the commemoration could stir bitter memories, especially between China and Japan. Prime Minister Abe will need to show a masterful contrition that tacks elegantly between Chinese and Korean grievances on the one hand and Japanese pride on the other. I could go on. The speech from which I have been quoting contained many more interesting perspectives. Discussing the ways in which politicians must counter the challenges arising from the change in the distribution of global economic power, the speaker suggested that, quote, Governments, therefore, must remain relentlessly focused on the challenge of maintaining economic prosperity and competitiveness. It means acknowledging if popular programs are unsustainable or undermine these objectives. Many would add it means taking unpopular decisions. I would rephrase that by saying it means taking decisions which may not be popular but which will be accepted because the public understands why they have to be taken. Now, note this final sentence in that paragraph. Leaders must be decision-makers, but they must also be, above all, explainers and advocates, unravelling complex issues in clear language that explains why things have to change and why the government cannot solve every problem." Unquote. Another interesting perspective for me, which emerged from an exhaustive scan of the Internet, was that last sentence was the only sentence quoted from the speech in the Australian press, used almost in passing by the Sydney Morning Herald, but completely divorced from its wider context. And that was only because the speaker I have been quoting at length in Los Angeles was Australian Minister for Communications Malcolm Turnbull, thought to be involved in the current developing leadership spill in Canberra over the Prime Ministership of Tony Abbott, which ended a few days later with Abbott remaining Prime Minister, at least for the time being. 
A leadership spill is the robust Aussie version of the more sedate vote of no confidence found in other parliamentary democracies. Two dissident MPs had filed a spill motion favouring a new leadership vote by the whole caucus of the ruling Liberal Party. Turnbull has been a previous Liberal leader prior to being defeated in the 2009 leadership spill by Abbott's 42 votes to his 41. But the press immediately thought Turnbull was involved because of the opinion polls showing that if he was now to become Liberal leader, the current widening of Labour Party's lead over the Liberals in opinion polls will be decisively wiped out overnight. So the fascinating perspective once again emerged of the press being one of the unnominated contestants in a leadership spill, as it had been under the last Labour government with the Rudd-Gillard and then the Gillard-Rudd leadership spills. The press sought to make Turnbull into a spill contestant, while Turnbull tried very hard to avoid any such image, knowing that initially he was bound by loyalty to the Prime Minister who had appointed him to the Cabinet. In Los Angeles, he limited himself to questions on his speech and excluded any questions on Australian politics. Back in Canberra, he simply disappeared from public view. His wide-ranging speech on various Asian realities, which I have been quoting, was also lost to view, except as a footnote on Turbull's own internet website. Meanwhile, this latest leadership spill confirms the view that leaders tend to lose out in spills, no matter who actually wins them. Subtract the 30 to 40 members of Abbott's government who voted for him, and the Prime Minister was supported by a minority of backbenchers. So unless Abbott turns around his standing in the polls, another spill before the next election seems inevitable. Meanwhile, one looks forward to the perennially insightful Malcolm Turnbull, delivering a speech in which he not only deals again with Asian realities, but also answers the question, does the intrusive role of the press in leadership spills serve or diminish the freedom of the press?